Church Sunday. So I want to start with a video to remind us of the need to pray for Christians around the world who might be meeting today, but might be meeting in different scenarios and circumstances than what we are in in, in our freedom that we have here. So uh, check that out. We pray for endurance that our brothers and sisters facing these hardships might finish the race that has been placed before them. We pray for courage. For those who are stepping into this war zone, they will keep their faith in spite of the fears that they face. For their selflessness inspires us. It inspires us to accept our calling to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth. But we do not only pray for those who are persecuted, but for those who persecute us. So I thought it was very appropriate that uh, the passage we're looking at today actually deals with persecution uh, pretty clearly, and it is International Pray for the Persecuted Church Sunday, and so I want to highlight that this morning. Um, I have a few pictures. Uh, last, a week or two ago, I asked you to pray for a friend of mine, uh, Dennis Augury. If you're on the table, which is our online community, uh, if you haven't gotten on the table, you can sign up for that, but um, I asked for prayer for my friend Dennis Augury. He's a Liberian church planner. Um, and he he purposefully went into an unsafe place in in Liberia to to fast and pray and and spread the gospel. He and a friend went there, and, and they knew it was unsafe, and they knew in that area they'd outlawed the worship of God, and yet they went there anyway. And and so he was taken captive, and I was sharing that on the table to ask you to pray for him. Uh, this is a couple pictures from his time in captivity there. Uh, obviously, his feet uh, chained to uh, a board there. Uh, that was the hut that he was held in. And uh, that's Dennis. And uh, and then the last picture is him and his family. Now, the reason I know, I'm privileged to know Dennis Augury uh, is because his wife, Vania, uh, went to church in Watoma with us and she volunteered, before she was married, she volunteered to watch our kids while I was doing youth ministry stuff. So if I'm teaching the kids, she was watching my kids in the nursery while I was teaching the teens. And so she's a wonderful lady, and she went on this missions trip uh, to Liberia, met Dennis, and then, uh, you know, God worked that thing out between them. They got married. They have a son named Lucas, and they have a new baby as well. So um, just really cool. And, and I, I say it because it's a really happy ending. Uh, within 24 hours of that issued call to prayer, you know, to our church and to other churches that uh, that Dennis was associated with, apparently the Liberian government got involved and demanded uh, his release, and his captors actually did release him. I haven't heard the whole story about what happened while he was in captivity. 
I heard him use the word torture. I'm, I'm just, I don't know what that looked like or what that was. I've just heard him use that word in describing what he went through while in captivity for that, for that day or so. But he was released. Uh, and I know that's not everybody's story, but I tell that story to say, we as a church are called to pray. You know, and, and we don't always know the names like I knew that name, and, and, and I've hung out with this person before. We don't always know the names, but we do know to pray. And so I want to look at a passage that I hope will stir us up in understanding the battle that's taking place, both here in America, maybe in a different way in America, but also happening around the world in a very significant way. So if you go to Revelation chapter 12, that's what we're looking at this morning. Revelation uh, chapter 12. If you're new to this church or checking things out, yes, we've been in Revelation for a little while here this fall. And uh, yes, Revelation contains a lot of difficult passages and symbolic language. But, but our focus here, we believe Revelation is about Jesus Christ, not the Antichrist. It's about Jesus Christ and his plan, and his purposes for history. It's about exalting him and showing that he is the one with all power. He's going to bring history to its conclusion, and we're going to be praising him and enjoying him forever. We're going to enjoy God. We're going to enjoy God's Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit in a way we've never experienced before. That is what Revelation is really about, uh, even though on the, way, on the way to paradise, there's some very hard judgments along that path. And so we're looking at those two. Um, this morning we're looking at another difficult passage, uh, and um, we just want we want to understand it. We don't want to get hung up on every little thing, but we want to understand what is, what is God saying here in, in the details of this text. So let's take a look at chapter 12, verse 1. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun. Now, automatically, you should be thinking, this is a sign. It's not a literal woman. It's the sign. It's symbolic. It's a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. <clears throat> And there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels, excuse me, <clears throat> fought against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and, and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb 
And by the word of their testimony, they didn't love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who, was a, who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert, where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with a torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. When you come to a passage like this with uh, multiple, multiple symbols, woman, dragon, the offspring of the woman, the child the woman bears, the sun, moon, stars. You might need a scorecard to keep track of all this. I mean, you ever, you ever, I find myself often watching kids' movies and, and I hear, I hear like voices of the actors who are playing the cartoon characters in the movie and I think, I know that voice. And so I'm waiting for the credits to see if I've actually matched the voice with the right person. You ever do that? Is that just me? I think it's, it amazes me. But, I want to know who played that voice because it was a funny voice and do I really, did I really identify who it was correctly? You need a kind of a scorecard for this because you're reading, you're reading through this and going, now who's who? Because these could be a variety of people and of course people, Christians throughout the centuries have identified these people differently. Maybe not the dragon. He seems pretty clear. He's called that ancient serpent or the devil. Not much wiggle room there, but the woman has been kind of difficult to determine. Those of you who have read Revelation before, uh, the woman stands in contrast to the, the harlot of Babylon, which we're going to get to later. But, but she sometimes is identified as Eve, perhaps. Some people think she stands for humanity. But I think the best way to understand her is to say, she's Israel. She stands for Israel. Why? Because Genesis 37, and this is where if you have your notes, it's kind of helpful. Uh, Genesis 37 verse 9 has a story of Joseph. You know Joseph with his, his amazing uh, uh, coat of many colors that drives his brothers to jealousy. And Joseph has a dream one night and he says, In my dream, I dreamed that the sun, moon, and the stars bowed down to me. And the brothers knew exactly what he meant. It wasn't uh, like, what kind of symbols do those mean? Tell us, Joseph. No, they needed no interpretation because they knew sun and moon and stars referred to mom, dad, and the brothers. And we're going to be bowing down before our little brother Joseph. And they hated him. There, there was no wondering what that dream meant and the symbolic language of it. So when we read this and we see that this woman it has the sun and the moon around her and, and, and the 12 stars, we're thinking 12 tribes of Israel, Jacob. Rachel, his wife, the mother of Joseph. This is who we're talking about. The woman is Israel. At least it seems most clear that that's who it is. And the woman has a child. The woman has a child who's going to rule the nations with an iron scepter, right? That's what it says. And that's a reference to Psalm chapter 2, 
which is a messianic psalm. It's a psalm about the coming Messiah, who we know as Jesus. And it says he's going to rule the nations with an iron scepter. So the child, very clearly, is the Messiah, who we know is Jesus Christ. Now, the angels that the dragon sweeps, uh, or I should say the stars. Oops, I gave it away. There we are. Um, the, the stars that swept away in verse 4, his tail sweeps a third of the stars out of the sky and flings them to earth. Um, earlier in the book of Revelation, we had the symbol of, of a star or stars, and John in, interpreted those for us as angels. So again, it seems very likely that when it says his tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky, he's not talking about uh, a great uh, uh, falling stars everywhere, but he's talking about fallen angels or demons that Satan has taken with him. Okay? Now, he's clearly opposing the woman and, and her offspring. Uh, later, it, it says he's, he's enraged and he wants to make war against the woman's offspring. That would be Christians. That would be us. We are the offspring of the woman. We, we are connected to Christ. Now, um, the first thing we might want to note here then is this passage is telling us there is a great cosmic battle that's raging. It's invisible, and yet, and yet it's going on. It's a huge battle involving angels, involving this dragon or Satan, and it's happening. And even though we can't see it, it's raging. I mean, it's kind of like... I was thinking, how do, how do you explain that to somebody who just doesn't, can't even grasp that? I thought, the only thing I've got is, when I was a little kid, uh, all my family had headaches for a while, and we realized why we were getting headaches. Everybody in the family was getting headaches. It was carbon monoxide, you know? Our furnace was leaking carbon monoxide, and so we had to get that fixed. It's like, why do we all, why do we all have headaches? You know, it, it's colorless, odorless, but, but it's causing damage. And, and that's what's going on in the spiritual world today. Like, we, we see physical effects of it. We see darkness across this country. We see Christians suffering in other countries. And you say, what's going on there? Why do people just not like Christians? Well, it, it's an invisible battle that's raging. I mean, I think about this so much. Like, I don't want to be an obnoxious Christian. You know what I mean? I, I don't want to be that guy that's always getting on somebody's case and, and, and trying to preach and, and, and get on people. And, and, just, and just force my views. I don't want to be that guy when I'm talking to people. I want to be gentle and respectful and yet testify to the truth. That, that's what I want to do. And yet, gently and respectfully, talking about Jesus will get you in trouble. You know, because people want to know, where do you stand on the hot issues of today? Are you one of those Christians that's against this and this? And if you answer yes, well then you're the bigot and you're not respected and you're hated. So I'd rather, I'd rather when people think of Three Lakes Church, they think that's a church that blesses people. That's a church that wants to love the community and take care of them. And yet sometimes our insistence that there's only one way to God, Jesus Christ, it just gets us in trouble. And, and that's just the way we've got to live with that. Because there's an invisible battle raging, and even though we can't see it, when you talk about Jesus and somebody hears you say it and gets all offended, what's really going on is there's a spiritual war for that person's soul. I mean, demons are active and we can't see it, but it's happening. 
And so I want to be a blessing. And yet I know that being a blessing means not only do I, we meet people's physical needs, but we try to meet their spiritual needs and tell them, you need Christ. He's the only way to God. And if that offends you, I can't help it. I've got to tell you the truth as gently and respectfully as I can. But the battle rages. And people tend to hate sometimes what we say. So the battle's going. Uh, Ephesians 6.12, our struggles not against flesh and blood, our struggles against rulers, authorities, and the powers of this dark world against the spiritual forces of evil and heavenly realms. Uh, the forces of darkness have a plan for your life too, and that's to keep you from pursuing Christ and loving him above all and serving him. I mean, there's a plan involved here. It's to keep you struggling in sin. That's part of the plan. It might be invisible, but you're feeling the effects just like carbon monoxide. It's, poison, it's trying to poison you if it could. Okay. Secondly, we might say about this, if I just ask you the question, okay, so there's a battle going and, and there's this dragon and he hates the woman's children. He hates this child that's going to rule the nations. He hates Jesus and he wants to devour that child. Um, what? Who wins that battle? Who wins? And if you said, well, the angels fight him and they win, I'd say, yes, you're right. And if you said, well, it says, uh, we overcome him in verse 11. We overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. Then, then Christians win. And I'd say, you're right. And if you said, well, wait a minute, what about that ruling with an iron scepter, verse 5? And, and what about getting him getting kicked out of heaven, you know, um, He's been hurled down in verse 10. He's been hurled down. Did Jesus win? Did the angels win or did we win? And the answer is yes. We all won. We all won. So the victors of the battle are Jesus, angels, and the people of God. And isn't that remarkable? Because we're talking about the same battle on different levels. There's this spiritual battle going on where uh, angels, good angels, are fighting fallen angels, are fighting Satan, and they win. We are fighting spiritual battles with Satan and what he's trying to do in the darkness in this land, and we win. And then Jesus dies on a cross for the sacrifice for all the sins of the world to free us from the power of Satan and he wins and they kick him out of heaven. So ultimately you can say Jesus wins. But we're fighting with him. Like we have a, we have a part in this battle. It, it's a battle that's been won on the cross. We talked about this over the summer. Remember with Joshua? Uh, we don't fight for victory. We fight from victory. The battle's been won. Like the cross already happened. Satan has already been defeated. His doom is already assured. He's already been cast down. I'm, all right, I'm trying to work this out of my mind and go, well, when did he get cast out? Remember that passage where Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning to the earth? You know? So is that before the cross, after the cross? Well, like when Jesus said that, it was before the cross, obviously. So, so when did he get thrown out? I don't know. I don't see an answer here, and I didn't find one this week when I was thinking about it and looking for it. But my best 
speculation or guess, maybe it's better than that, I don't know, is that when Jesus died on the cross and made uh, a mockery of, of, the, of the spiritual forces of darkness, he triumphed over them, the scripture tells us, that seems very likely that's when Satan was cast out. Um, can he ever come back? I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm trying to work this out. But it seems like he is out, whereas like in the book of Job, he used to be there and, and accusing people like Job before God. But the problem with this is, if he's cast out, things are getting harder and harder here on earth. Because it says, okay, rejoice, verse 12, you heavens, because, and you would dwell in them. You know, he, he's gone. Satan is gone. Let's have a party, right? Let, let's celebrate. But woe to us. You ever have those uh, family reunions where there's that difficult family member and, uh, and then they get up to go home and you're like relieved? Do you ever feel that way? <laughs> you're like, oh man, that was hard. That was hard, you know? Because they bring, they bring all of their, perhaps their darkness into your house. And they're family, so they're there. But then they leave and you're like, you just kind of breathe a sigh of relief. Well, well, this is that on a different scale. Like Satan is out of heaven. He has no place here. Christ has triumphed over him. Let's celebrate. And yet for people of earth, it's harder because now he's here and he's furious because his time is short. Meaning the closer we get to Jesus's return, the angrier and more fierce Satan becomes against the church. That should give us pause to consider. Now, I want to spend the rest of our time, and we're going to go to communion very soon here, but the rest of our time speaking to the issue of how do we overcome Satan? How does the persecuted church overcome Satan? How is it they can stand firm in the face of persecution? And if it was us, would we be able to stand firm? Uh, well, we got to be praying for them. But, but here's how you overcome. If you have darkness in your life and you say, Satan has a great strategy against me because I just keep giving into it. I, I'm just stuck in it. This is how you overcome. Check out verse 11. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They didn't love their lives so much as to shrink from death. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. Now, all of these words in that verse we've seen before in Revelation. I want to pick it apart for a moment because you can read that and go, okay, we win because of Jesus' blood. Got it. But what does that mean? Let, let's dig a little bit there. The first word in that verse is, is uh, they, right? They overcame. They is plural. It's plural. I'm not suggesting that an isolated Christian is uh, defenseless and uh, without the Spirit of God because they have that in a powerful way if you're all alone. But there is strength in us. There's strength in numbers. They overcame him. You know, it's like, it's like what Hebrews says. Don't, don't I mean, encourage one another daily so that you're not hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We need each other if we're going to overcome the darkness that we see encroaching on our life. We need each other. It's not a solo effort. Um, it says they overcame. 
Now, uh, we've also seen the word overcome. If you remember in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, all of the churches, these seven churches that John wrote to originally, use the word overcome. He calls each of them, like, if you want to overcome, this is what it looks like. This is what it means to be an overcomer. So uh, what I've done is I've just kind of uh, uh, summarized what each church was supposed to overcome to get an idea of what John means when he writes about overcoming here. Ephesus. Ephesus, John says, uh, Jesus says to Ephesus, the church there, you've forsaken your first love. You don't, you don't love me like you used to love me. You have other things that you care more about now. You have other things that have taken your affection away from me. So in Ephesus, they had to overcome idolatry. I mean, idolatry is not bowing down to a piece of wood, maybe the way they did, but it's us loving things more than God. It's us saying, I'm really serving this more than I'm serving God. I'd rather be rich than, than, than to serve God. I'd rather be happy than, than to serve God. It, it, it's idolatry. Anything that gets placed above God. Satan loves taking God's good gifts, twisting them and saying, would you love this more than you love God? You know, that's what he does. Relationships. Would you love this person more than you love God? And that makes it unhealthy. It's like, that's a good relationship. How did it go wrong? Well, I placed it above God and it went wrong. Um, That's idolatry. Um, Smyrna was facing persecution. I mean, they were the persecuted church. And to overcome for Smyrna meant to overcome persecution. Not give in. Not give up. Hold to Christ even in the face of death. All right? Pergamum. Pergamum had false teaching going on. They weren't holding to the truth of Scripture. They were getting off course and believing other things. And so we have to overcome false teaching. Even even things that we've grown up believing because our family said that's just the way it is. And when Scripture contradicts those things, we've got to call it out and say, I will not believe that. Even though I was raised to believe that, the Bible tells me different. That's overcoming false teaching. Then you have uh, Thyatira, right? Thyatira had a big problem with uh, this woman named Jezebel who was tempting people into sexual immorality. So they had to overcome impurity. I think that's a huge challenge for the church today in America, to overcome impurity of this culture. This culture calls it normal to be sexually impure and impure in many ways. And we say, no, we've got to overcome that. We have to overcome that. That's Satan's tactic against us. Uh, how about Sardis? We overcome deadness. Um, the, the, uh, Jesus says to Sardis, you have a reputation for being alive, but actually you're dead. You're actually pretty dead inside. Overcome that deadness that sometimes we feel. Like, I don't feel connected to God at all. I feel, man, why am I even doing this? Deadness. Um, how about Philadelphia? Um, he says, I place before you an open door. No one's going to take this ministry away from you. We overcome laziness. Some of us would rather serve ourselves than serve other people. Probably all of us have that hardwired into us, by the way. But some of us carry it out and say, I don't have time to serve people. That, that gets too big. That's too much in my schedule. I don't have time for that. Laziness. Spiritual laziness means I don't want to help people. I just want to help myself. We have to overcome that if we're going to be the church. And Laodicea, uh, that's the one, you know that church where God says, uh, Jesus says, you're not hot, you're not cold, you make me sick, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. You know, you just make me sick. 
We need spiritual passion, heat. We need to be on fire in our affection for Jesus Christ. Okay, the spiritual heat. So these appear to be ways Satan is coming against the church today. We see some of this stuff, a lot of this stuff, in in the American church. If we're going to overcome it, how are we going to do it? Well, one, we overcome it by the blood of the Lamb. You have three passages that that have come before this one that mention Jesus' blood. Let's get a picture of what we mean when we say the blood of Jesus helps us overcome. Revelation 1.5. It says, uh, Jesus Christ is a faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. You can't overcome your sin without applying the blood of Christ to it. You can't overcome that mistake that you keep on making over and over, that cycle you get into, without being connected to the blood of Christ that paid for that sin. There's no freedom from it, in other words. You can't come into church and say, um, I'll believe in God when I get my act together. No, you can't get your act together without God. All right? He helps you get out of what you're into, right? It's, it's the blood of Christ. It frees you from sin. It enables you to say, this sin doesn't have more power. I mean, here's the question that we have to ask as Christians. If you're stuck in a sin, what has more power? The blood of Christ or the sin in your life? And depending on how you answer that will depend on how you live. Okay? The blood of Christ frees us. Uh, and it says in Revelation 5.9, here's another passage with the word blood in it. They sang a new song. You're worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. They're talking to Jesus. With your blood, you purchased men from God from every tribe and language, people and nation. How many of us struggle with, this is just who I am. It's just who I am. I'm a self-centered person. I'm always going to be that way. I don't want to serve people. Um, how many of you struggle with, I have impurity in my life. I still believe in Jesus. I still believe I'm saved, but it's just, I'm an impure person. I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. This says that we are purchased. We have a new identity. We belong to God now. We belong to Christ. We don't belong to Satan. We don't belong to the world. They don't own us anymore. We have a new master. And it's actually the original master who made us, which is wonderful. Okay? So blood gives us new identity as the people of God. Revelation 7.14. Um. John and the elder are talking, and, and uh, the elder says, These are those who have come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Sometimes it's the guilt, right? Satan's an accuser. That's, that's one of the main things he does is accuse us. Like, you did that. Remember 10 years ago, you did that. And I'm not letting you forget it. And the blood of Jesus says, No, you can... You can let go of that now because the blood covered it and you can't see it anymore. God doesn't look at it anymore. You don't have to look at it. I know that's easy to say and harder to live out. I know there's some steps you have to take maybe to get to that point. It it can be a hard struggle, but the blood of Christ says there's no more guilt. You're free. And that's how you overcome. Now, it also mentions their testimony. Now, In talking about the testimony that overcomes Satan, um, I just want to read all the verses about testimony we've come through so far, and then we'll make some conclusions about it. So so check these out. Revelation 1, verse 2. 
Uh, John testifies to everything he saw that is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Revelation is about Jesus Christ. Again, uh, then Revelation 1.9 says, I, John, your brother and companion, in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the Isle of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John saying, I am on this island exiled because I hold the testimony of Jesus Christ. Revelation 6, 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain. They'd been killed because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. Revelation eleven seven, and when they'd finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them, overpower them, and kill them. So these two prophets are killed because of because they're done with their testimony. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring to those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. That's a reference to us. Revelation twelve seventeen. Apparently, holding to the testimony of Jesus gets you in trouble. Did, did you pick that up? Apparently, there's going to be people that are not going to like you if you hold to Jesus' testimony. And again, there's that struggle. If I'm really talking about Jesus, loving people like Jesus would, and, and, and speaking to the truth when God gives me a chance to speak it, will I do it boldly and not in fear of my reputation? Not in fear of what people will say about me. I'll do it. And if people start uh, speaking against Three Lakes Church because we're so crazy about Jesus, can we be okay with that? Can we be okay? We have to be okay with that. Because the persecuted church is facing that every day. If we hold to this testimony, there are people in our governments that are in the thrall of Satan, and they would like to kill us. They would like to kill us. Because Satan is acting very powerfully in their country. And he's opposing them through persecution. Seems like for us, Satan's opposing us through impurity, spiritual laziness, not wanting to be the church. There's ways that he opposes us too. And we need to pray about those things. But we certainly need to be praying for the persecuted church because Jesus has the authority to make those people stand in the face of Satan and not give up the testimony of Christ. I tell you one more story. And... uh, it's purposely not a detailed story because I, I wish to give Satan no credit. But in talking about the authority of Jesus that casts Satan out of heaven, like you can't be here anymore, I'm sorry, he's got to go. Like that's authority. It, it's authority that comes from the cross of Christ. He triumphed over darkness. There was a time when I was called uh, to the hospital by a family that I knew to pray over a young girl who was having some sort of demonic attack. I'll just put it that way. Um, That's what it appeared to be. And I'm just telling you that in that moment, I mean, I've never experienced anything like that in my life. Never. But I can tell you that all I knew to do was the thing you would know to do. I just prayed. That's all I knew how to do. You just pray and know that Jesus has the authority to free this young girl from whatever is going on. Be it psychological, be it demonic, be it emotional, I don't know. I just know to pray. And so I prayed, 
And everything that was happening to her in that moment, about halfway through the prayer, just stopped. Like everything that was going on just stopped. And when the prayer was over, she was completely herself. And I say that not to say that my prayers are any more special than anyone else's. My reason for telling that story is to say that the authority of Christ is so powerful and you can experience that in your life. You can overcome because of Jesus' authority to overcome in your life. That's how it is. That is how it is. Let's pray.